Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are starting a new series today that we are calling Temple Presence. I've been really excited about this series for a while. Sometimes when you're in church and you go even somewhat regularly, you're in one piece of scripture for a while and it's really rich and deep, but we can lose sight of what some would call the meta-narrative of scripture, meaning back way up and see the whole arc of the story of God from history past to the future. And so this is what we are going to be doing during this story, uh, during this series, four weeks. And why we want to do this is that it's important to know that big backed up view of the entire story that we, um, when we dive deep, we know where we are in that meta narrative of scripture. If you're new to church or checking out um, the Christian faith at all, I really encourage you to either come for four weeks or to listen online so you can hear the whole arc of the big story. So that from time to time when you're in the moments of it, you know where the whole thing goes. The big, the big, I'm using my hands a lot right now, like the big thing and where it is. So I encourage you if you're new to church to, to come and to learn or to listen online if you're missing a week, the big story. But here's the risk. If you're used to being in church a lot, you can kind of be like, I know the story and kind of tune out a little bit. So that's why I wanted to tell the meta narrative this time through the lens of temple presence. So what we're going to be doing through the next four weeks is we're going to slow down. If, you've, if you know the meta narrative, that's okay. Just focus on where we are each Sunday and ask this question. How do we track the story of God as seen through the place of God's presence with his people? This is a series that's going to follow the arc of where is God's presence. So why are we excited to do it this way? Because I think that looking at it through the power of presence, how presence is such a factor for God, the big idea is that our God is a God of relationship. And we're going to see that in God's relentless pursuit of presence in relationship with the people that God loves, okay? So that's what we're going to be asking each week. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get us started. Um, God, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here in your presence. You've said that where two or three are gathered in your name, King Jesus, that you are with us. And so we honor that fact, um, regardless of how we feel right now. I pray that you would help us to settle into this space, try to become in tune with your presence here, and also honor the whole arc of how you've been a, a God of pursuit throughout all of history. So we love you, and I pray that you would uh, refine my words for your purposes this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if we're going to tell the meta narrative, we got to start at the very, very beginning. Okay. So we're going to just quickly start off. Where do we start? We're calling week one, leaving the garden, because that's where all of this pursuit of presence really started in unique ways. The original intent in God's created order was that God would be with Adam and Eve just in unfiltered, unabashed, uh, abundant presence with each other. Shalom, perfection, peace, flourishing, all of these words kind of perfected in this relationship, walking in the cool of the garden together. 
Adam and Eve, scripture tells us, they were naked and unashamed. And what that means is that there was a sense of purity, a harmony um, of peace that was there. But in that moment, the enemy came through the form of a serpent and told Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them in their relationship together. And to basically said, in essence, you should take that fruit. Surely God was having a bad plan when he told you not to eat that. You should be the one to determine what is good versus what is evil. You should do that. And they're like, yeah, maybe God was holding out on us. And they ate the fruit and their eyes were open to their nakedness and they were ashamed. Shame was the first negative emotion that crept into that perfect shalom. And shame, side note, is one that I still see crippling so many people, myself included at times today. Shame was the first thing that broke that shalom. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? God was in the garden to go on a walk with them. God was there to just hang out, but they were ashamed because they now knew they were naked. And God said, who told you that? Who even told you about that? And in this moment, we see that pure, unblemished communion between humans and God in the garden was fractured. And so that's the place, leaving the garden, where our story of God's pursuit of presence needs to start. When God states the consequences of their disobedience, we see that the man and women, woman will be at strife with one another. We have the beginning of just relational strife um, God, that God says is going to come. He also, God tells them that their work will become toilsome. It will become hard, uh, not just a delight as things flourish. It will be hard work. And God tells them that they cannot remain in the shalom of the garden. And it's important to note that this is not God placing a curse on them. God is naming the consequences of their sin. He's naming the natural consequences of their choice, their decision to try to take that knowledge of good and evil into their own hands instead of trusting in God's perfect wisdom. The snake is cursed the soil is cursed, but the removal from the garden was not a curse. It was a consequence. We see, even in that moment of that consequence to the man and woman, we see God reaching out to protect them, actually spilling the first blood in the Bible, the blood of animals. We see a whisper, perhaps, of a sacrifice there, but we see that God is doing that to protect them, to give them skins, to cover them. They're about to leave that perfect shalom, that flourishing, and go into very harsh conditions, and God sends them with a protection. But as a result of this fracture, they can no longer have what we would call unmediated relationship. So when I use that term mediated, that means like, like a bridge, a mediator, right? It's like something, a bridge in between. Now, it's very important to note, this is not the end of the relationship at all. It's just that now that perfect unity and shalom, that chilling out in the cool of the garden, needs some form of mediation. It can no longer be unmediated. Not because like we need to go seek a mediator because we're in a big fight and we can't come to a solution. That would be like one current modern use of a mediator. We're in a fight. It's not that kind. It's a different kind. It's for the safety of the humans who have sinned. Because they are no longer pure and unblemished, they can't walk in the cool of a garden with a completely holy God without being 
harmed, to be honest with you. So this is kind of the analogy I've heard before, and I, I can't quote the source. If one of you knows it, you probably heard it too. The analogy is kind of like the holiness of God is like the sun. We absolutely need it. We rely on it. The sun sustains us, warms us, keeps the planet. Oh my gosh, there's so much stuff up here today. This is a real danger. Okay. Um, keeps things going, right? Our lives depend on the sun. But if we were ever get too close to the sun, that, that pure heat would actually damage us. I thought of this recently when um, the eclipse was going on and the news kept saying, it's beautiful, it's awesome, you can't believe it. Don't look at it without the mediation, the in-between of special glasses or it will damage your eyeballs, right? So that's kind of the thought that think of those um, uh, eclipse glasses as like the concept of mediation between between the unholy and the holy because it could be damaging to be too close. Nothing unholy can be in the presence of divine holy. The, the holy wins. It overtakes. There can be nothing that isn't it, that, that damages the holy, right? They, they can't go the other way. So enough of that. The concept then becomes in this moment of leaving the garden that we need some form of mediation or in between as protection for the humans, for us, from the utter complete holiness of Yahweh God. Okay, so we've left the garden and we're gonna go through Genesis super, super quick. And here's what happens. This family of Adams and Eves is growing, growing. You can read the book of Genesis and see this family tree and they are on the move. So we're gonna keep our eye on the core question. Where do we find God's presence now? So we're going to join in in a fast forward version of as if we are Adam and Eve's descendants on this Genesis journey prior to the promised land. Okay, that's where we are today, prior to the promised land. If you've been in church a long time, don't sneak and get to head. We'll talk about Jesus, but not much today. Okay, staying where we are. So as we go, watch for it. God longs to be found by us. I think about that Jeremiah passage. Now I'm just fast forwarding what I told you to, not to do. I'm just doing it now. So like way later, there's this moment, if this could be the key verse for this whole series, where the people are in exile and uh, the prophet Jeremiah calls out to them and they've wandered in their hearts and he's like, come back, come back. God longs to be found by you. In Jeremiah 29, 14, God says that I will be found by you. You guys, that's one of the most remarkable statements in my mind in the whole Bible. Like, seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you. This is a God who longs to be found by the people. Okay, so we're going to see this in the real-time story of a wandering people. So how is God going to be found by us now? We are now the descendants of Adam and Eve. We're wandering around. Where's God's presence now? And here's what I would say before we look at some of them. Here's, God is really creative in this pursuit, right? Okay, we're gonna go through just a couple examples. So a few times in the book of Genesis, while we're following this family tree, God appears in a physical form. Uh, an angel of the Lord in the presence of what appears to be a man, a human, a physical presence and God appears to carry a message or have an important conversation. This only happens a couple times, but it's really, really important moments. When I read these encounters, you guys, I am like made of questions. I want the Bible to tell me so much more. Like, what does this angel of the Lord look like? What is the presence of God? How tall is he? Like, is he, does he have a smile or is he kind of like intimidating? What's the tone of his voice? I want to know so much more, but I have to deal with what we know. Here's what we know. These folks in some way encounter what is later understood to be the 
physical presence of God right there interacting with them in these remarkable moments. We're going to talk about a few. It happens a couple times with Abraham and Sarah. They get this promise, you know, the whole nation. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. You're going to have a nation, many children as the stars, sand on the shore, all of this, all the nations will be blessed. This promise comes in a person who they don't know in the moment is the Lord. I think probably that's what Hebrews is talking about when they say in the book of Hebrews, I think it's in 13, where it says like to show practice hospitality to strangers, you might be entertaining angels unaware like that's what Abraham and Sarah were doing and they realized it later it was like an angel of the Lord was there and they like made dinner for him and he was in carrying important news Hagar I love her story okay she is the slave of Abraham and Sarah she's a whole big story it's like super intense we can't do the whole thing today we probably need to do um, a series in Exodus is what this is telling me right now but okay so she is running away from her abusive Sarah uh, mistress, right? And she's running away and the angel of the Lord comes and says, no, 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 return. I have a plan and you're part of it. I want you to go back. And she says this, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. In Hebrew, she names God. She gives a name to God, right? There's lots of names for God in the Bible. She's the first one to ascribe a name to Yahweh God. She calls him Elroy, the God who sees me. I have seen the God who sees me. That's what kind of physical encounter has happened. Later on, she and her son are dying of thirst and the angel of the Lord returns to her and provides water and helps to encourage her. She says, I I have seen the God who sees me. So cool. Another one, Jacob. Jacob wrestles with the Lord. Again, I am made of question. He has a limp for the rest of his life because there's some kind of wrestle that's happened and he later goes on to be called Israel. Um, it's like his nickname, but that now that he is uh, the father of these 12 tribes, right? But Jacob wrestles with the Lord. So this is one way. What do we see in these kind of manifestations of God's presence, these personal encounters? Just a couple observations for you because we're just telling the whole story. What do we see in these moments? Because these encounters are incredibly intimate. There's specific communication to their specific situation going on where God is guiding their journey, shaping their journey. And they, you feel the importance of them in his purposes that he would come and engage with them in this intimate, specific communication. But it's not yet to a broader community. That's not happening yet in where we are in the story. So I'm going to do like the Twitter length version of a whole big next piece of our history, right? Genesis, family expands. They go to Egypt because one of their sons, Joseph, has found favor there through a crazy story that we don't have time for today. And the rest of his family, who's a big bunch of people, they follow him there because there's famine and Egypt has food. And Joseph has favor. And so they're like having a good time in Egypt. 400 years past, they're not having a good time in Egypt anymore. The new Pharaoh forgets all about that old story and enslaves the Hebrew people. That's where we are now. Okay. They are now being harshly treated as slaves. And we see a new method emerge of how God chooses to demonstrate presence with the people. And that is through fire and cloud in this stage of the meta narrative of scripture. I can't cover all of them, but let's hit some of the high points. Famous burning bush, if you've heard of that. Um, this is a moment where God needs to get Moses' attention because Moses is going to serve as a mediator, like an interpreter kind of, like a, a mouthpiece for God to Pharaoh and to the people. 
God has chosen Moses for this and he needs his attention. And Moses is wandering around and he sees this bush that is on fire, but it is not being consumed by the fire. This is noteworthy. God has used fire to get his attention. And now God's very presence is in the burning bush. When the Lord saw that he had gone, to, gone over to look, at this strange bush, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He'd been staring at the bush. Now he realizes that's very it's God's presence itself, and he, hits, he hides his face. And I find this really interesting if you follow the life of Moses, that in this moment, he hides his face. Because later, when we go on in the story, we read that as he's the representative leading the people, he actually, Moses goes to a place that he calls the tent of the meeting and hangs out with God, like, on the regular. It's so cool. Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of the meeting. Moving forward to verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. What an amazing uh, moment of encounter, right? Scripture says that Moses would come out of this tent of the meeting. His face would be radiant, literally glowing. He would have to cover it with a veil, so amazing. And while they were in there having their tent of the meeting conversation face to face, Moses no longer afraid to look upon the very presence of God, there would be a pillar of cloud that would cover. So remember, we're looking now, where's God? We'd represented through fire and cloud. The pillar of cloud would cover the entrance of the tent, marking God's presence and the people would worship. And then when that cloud was lifted, they would know that the encounter, that communication was over and they would listen to the leadership of God through the mediation of Moses. And God would continue to lead the wandering Hebrew under Hebrews under Moses' mediation um, through the wilderness, and he would guide them by use of a pillar of fire by night or a pillar, pillar of cloud by day. That's how they knew. We're wandering the wilderness for 40 years. Where do we go? Well, I'm going to follow that big pillar of fire because that's the very presence of God. And we are trusting that God is going to send us through this wilderness journey. So there we see again, smoke and fire. As the people approach Mount Sinai, God's presence is at the top of this mountain in a storm, which are, you just, just think about this, like big clouds and like lightning fire-esque things. So this is like the epitome. The people are so scared. They are like, I am not going up there, Moses. You got to go. You got to go for us and we're going to stay down here and listen to whatever you say because that presence is holy and intimidating and huge and big and whatever. And so they are too afraid to go. And so Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments. So remember way back when Moses, when God appeared to Abraham and Sarah in the form of an encounter with the angel of the Lord, he gives them the promise, like, I will be your God, you will be my people, and all the world will be blessed through you. Well, now we fast forward, and we're with the presence of God, Moses is, within the storm at the top of Mount Sinai, and God's like, and now here's how we're going to start living that out relationally. Here are these Ten Commandments, so that you can reflect my character in the world and live in justice 
justice and rightness with me and with each other now. And so while he's up there, Moses is up there with the presence of God receiving these commandments, the people are staying a little ways away. So these examples, when we look at this section of the meta narrative, what do we see in these fire and cloud moments that's different than the personal encounters? Some of the things I see is there's just like a clear immediacy of holiness. Maybe when the personal encounters, people didn't realize until later they just encountered an angel of the Lord. But in these moments, it's like something is up now. Holiness, purity, and these fire and clouds. Um, I feel like we see an immediate reverence that's produced in the moments when people are in the presence of the fire or the cloud. And there's guidance. That's another thing that I see when I look at these. This is God not just showing up as like a parlor trick or to wow you. It's like, and I am your God and you are my people. Let me guide you. Now visible to the entire group. So that's another shift that we have now. And where is God's presence now? But the people are still nomadic. They are a people without place. They are on the move still. Now, God has promised them a land. You will go to the land of Canaan. It is flowing with milk and honey. It is my promised land to you. We're just going to hang out because of your disobedience in the desert for a while. So that's where we have been. But we are going to the promised land. And God says, while hanging out with Moses in the tent of the meeting, God says, okay, it's time to go. And then Moses says to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying like, and I love it that comes from Moses, right? Because Moses, more than anyone in this moment in the story, has encountered presence in such an intimate level with God and knows that guidance, but he has come to understand that on behalf of the entire nation that he's leading, their identity is tied to the mark of God's presence with them, among them. Cloud, fire, tent of the meeting, Mount Sinai, wherever it's looking like, Moses knows we aren't these people. We make no sense without you. If your presence doesn't go, do not send us from here. The presence of God up until this point has liberated them, guided them, and instructed them. So here is a presence theme that I'm going to say for all of the whole of history. Note this. Here's what we learned. God wants relationship to be the core mark of their identity as the people of God and still our identity today. God wants relationship to be the core mark, right? Relationship of people with God and vice versa. We hear vice versa. We hear that in the very covenant that's already been established. I will be your God and you will be my people. Like that is tying to like, this is a relationship that is core to who you are and who we are together. That's number one. And number two, coming from that, God wants that identity to reflect his character and eventually bless outward, right? And through you, all nations will be blessed. So this is, this is just like a core theme of the personhood of who God is when God is seeking after being present with the people. God wants relationship to be the core mark of their identity, and that identity is to reflect his character and bless outward. These people don't know how that blessing outward is going to work yet. Like, they, they don't know all of the details, but don't get ahead of ourselves, right? Here's what we do know. God's presence with people, bless you, fosters the relationship that is core to their identity and their purpose. So his presence fosters the relationship that defines their identity and their purpose as people. Presence matters. That's why I wanted to do this whole thing by looking at presence. So does God's presence need 
a tent of the meeting or a pillar of fire in order to be. Like, I need to have a place to be in order to be, right? I am, I am limited by my place. God is not. All of creation is God's dwelling place. We know that. God is not limited to place like I am or like you are. Um, so that's not what's going on when we're talking about presence. But what I see in these presence examples, they create, God is creating in them points of intersection between a holy God and an unholy people. He's creating points that are safe, for humans who would be the ones in danger otherwise. He's creating places that are safe and that help foster relationship. Back to that relationship that God once enjoyed walking in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. He wants to foster places that are safe and that allow that relationship to mend or to to work in some way. Here's the tricky part. If you are someone following God and you're trying to figure out how to be safe in relationship with a holy God, God has very, very specifically said that that presence cannot be represented in an idol. Absolutely not. No statue, no graven images, no made images to reflect the person of Yahweh, God. God cannot be summarized or contained by a figurine. And God knew that the cultures all around them were doing that with their deities. They were creating figurines. And so You guys, this was such a big deal to God. We could definitely have a whole sermon on it. We're not going to. I think a lot of you already know this part. Like it it was such a big deal. It makes top billing in the 10 commandments. 10 commandments are already top billing. It makes like top billing of the top billing on what it means to be the people of God, to not make an idol or a statue or a graven image. What I think God is saying in this, in this restriction is like, instead of ga- engaging with my actual presence, real relationship, you're going to start worshiping that, that representation, that, that trinket, whatever it is. We know, God knows, our hearts are prone to wander. And in order to protect us from that happening, he does not want to substitute real relationship for a trinket. Absolutely no idols. Why am I making such a point of that? Well, because we're still on the move, you guys. A trinket would really be easier because we got to go. We are living in tents and we are moving still, but we cannot contain our God in a figurine. We need something portable. We need presence in a way that works with where they are in their life stage now. We need a place where relationship can be fostered, but safely between holy and human and God provides the solution. The people did not come up with the plan here. God 100% presents the plan from the reading that Patrick read to us today. All of these things, like donate these things, I got a plan and we're going to make something that'll make this work. Exodus 25, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so in this point in the life of the story of the people of God, God's presence relies on tabernacle. So up until this point, if you're reading along in scripture, let's say you're doing that like, you know, from front cover to cover, I'm going to do this. You've had a lot of action. There's been excitement. There's been momentum, movement, miracles, big drama moments, big Mount Sinai storms, all of this. The pace has been busy and big. Since the garden, God's presence has been in special moments and manifestations. But now God says, I will dwell among you. 
I will dwell. My dwelling place will be here. This won't just be in little moments that you record as big deal moments. Like I'm gonna dwell among you. And all that momentum, all that movement, all that big stuff that we've been seeing going on, if you are reading, comes to this seven chapter break of description of the tabernacle. Confession. First time I read through the Bible, just trying to like pick it up and read through the whole thing, I got to this point and I was like, oh my gosh, this is really boring. But I was committed and I'm a rule abider. And so I read it all, but like I wasn't really paying attention. That's just my confession. When I've read it since and I go back, it's amazing the detail of God's instruction for the creation of the tabernacle. By the way, while, side note, while Moses is in Mount Sinai and the storm and the cloud of God's presence is there receiving all of these instructions on how to put together the tabernacle. This is when the people are making the golden calf. So side note, if you know the golden calf story, like that's while it's happening, while God's saying, here's how to mediate my presence. I have a plan and that no-no is going on. So anyway, Moses helped mediate through that mess. Um, And then we have five more chapters about the actual assembly, the construction of the tabernacle. I had brought up an image of what people have uh, showed from what we believe the tabernacle would look like following the instructions um, that God gave his people. And so you can see the whole thing would be covered in that tent. The illustrator just opened it so you can kind of get an idea. I won't go through all of the detail, but I just want to like talk about a couple things of it because it's a huge important moment in the history of God's people that God is dwelling among them, you guys. This was a big deal like since the garden, it hasn't been, well, and it's not quite the same, but this is a big deal moment for them. So tent construction, fabric walls, the tent can move with the people. This is a movable Um, structure with a lot of rules around moving it properly um, but because this is a wholly important place. So there's layers of level before someone would get to the Holy of Holies which is like that real golden golden all the way to the right. That's the holiest of holies. Lots of rules about one person entering one time of year only. So that's where um, there's what we see in that there's layers of protection that you can draw, draw nearer and nearer but still safely if you are the people of God. That's what we want to see here. There's layers kind of of protection that you can be near for worship, but not in a dangerous spot. Um, The Bible Project calls the holiest of holies the hot seat of God's presence, where the ark is. The ark is not an idol. It's the hot seat of God's presence that has some important things in it, and it is a sacred thing, but it's not a graven image of God, very important. It's more like a throne, not a statue or an image. God's presence was there in the space without needing to carve his likeness. That's that's what the people heard from this instruction. The courtyard outside um, was a place where people could encounter the divine on a regular basis. You could, you could know that you were near the presence of God, and that would have been an amazing stage in their life of worship. We take that for granted in the language that we'll get to in the next couple of weeks, but like imagine Imagine being the people of God and knowing that this is altogether new, that you've been invited to be so near to worship the very presence of God in this really amazing way. So inside, there's lots of details. I'm just going to say a few things. There's a place, uh, an altar for the sacrifice, and then there's something called the lava, which is like the cleaning bowl of this special water before entering. Um, There's a lampstand inside, a menorah, to bring light. I want you to kind of think of yourself being in that, the menorah 
menorah space, right? Um, that's not what it's called, but you can see the menorah there. Like if you were in there, you would be seeing the light being brought from this uh, menorah, the gold glow, this flickering light would be beautiful. There's a table of incense. Now your sense of smell is engaged, right? Uh, the, to engage in your senses. There's a table a special, of special bread representing the very presence of God. And they would, um, they would freshen that bread every Sabbath and, and would eat that bread that marked the actual presence of God. And there's this beautifully embroidered thick veil that separates the that, that space of worship from the holiest of holies. So that's a veil that's fabric and embroidered, but like in a protective way. And all of these chapters of the details of how to construct this, here's a couple things just to know from that. Number one, the artistic designs are talked about in incredible detail. Like um, Patrick was reading the specific colors of the yarn that were to be brought and the details go into like how to sew the pomegranates and stuff like that. The imagery is very garden ish, like Garden of Eden, we're returning to presence again here. So there's a lot of garden imagery. Also, if you were here this summer, I said this during our Old Testament series, but it bears repeating, the first person in all of scripture to be said to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God is a craftsman named Bezalel, whose work was on constructing the beauty, the artistry of this. This was important enough work to God to actually specifically anoint somebody with uh, um, access to the Holy Spirit in a unique way that was not happening up until that point. It's a really amazing thing. The colors of the threads, the metals used, the perfection in the symmetry, while it is not edge of your seat reading, I'll be honest, it is really rich and beautiful instruction, physical beauty, symbolism, engaging the people's senses in a real and embodied way. It all mattered when God created the space for people to experience his presence. And I don't think that's a mistake or just like, you know what, let's make it really pretty just for fun, like curate a lovely space. It's not just for fun. We experience God's presence and beauty. Don't you guys think? Don't you guys feel that way sometimes in art, through music, through uh, just in moments of uh, our senses being engaged? We experience God in those ways. If only, if only we could slow down enough to notice it and appreciate it. One of the experiences I have all the time, um, I drive our youngest, is a junior in high school, Forrest. One of us drives Forrest to school most mornings and we're just like, you know, rubbing our eyes and just making it happen to get onto Montrose and get our way to Lakeshore Drive. And inevitably we turn that corner and we see the sun over Lake Michigan and it's like breaking through the clouds and the colors are amazing. And like every day you turn that corner and you're like, oh my gosh. And you, you're just overwhelmed with the presence of God, whereas like a minute ago, you were just barely clutching your coffee, right? And like, it's that beauty moment that you suddenly see, like, I, I know that God is present in those moments. You feel the nearness of God. The veil seems very, very thin in those moments. Those feel like tabernacle moments to me. And I think that that's what God was creating in this space to demonstrate here's where I'm gonna be while I am dwelling with you. Speaking of that moment of rounding the corner and 
doing that most mornings when it's my turn to drive at least. This last week, I had the opportunity to go and work remotely in Northern Michigan. My parents live in Northern Michigan, a little bit north of Traverse City. It's so gorgeous up there, you guys. I was on the phone with Gigi, uh, another one of our kids, our daughter, um, while I turned around the corner, and I think probably near where the horse farm is, actually. I was near that area. I rounded the corner, I'm like, Gigi, you've gotta be kidding. The sun is glowing, the trees look like they're on fire with color and there's literally a horse like posing in front of a barn. I swear he's posing. Like it was so scenic. You couldn't even believe it. It was so beautiful. And literally two hours later, you guys, I was in a snowstorm. It was like white out. We were all going 30 miles an hour. It was winter wonderland. It was gorgeous, a little perilous. I didn't love it driving wise, but like literally it looked like I was in the dead of winter where all the fir trees, you couldn't, it was all white everywhere. It was stunningly beautiful. And then it went back to being fall again, a little further north. I absolutely love Michigan. Um, so anyway, but it was that stunning time and time again. And while I was driving, I was processing this sermon. I do a lot of processing time, praying over sermons when I'm either riding my lawnmower at the cabin, you guys know about that, or driving in the car. I love that as good processing space. And I was meditating on these early stages of God's presence, not getting ahead of the story, but just saying like, you like showed up in a person and offered water to Hagar. You, you, were, you were just working on this burning bush. I need Moses's attention. Like all of these creative ways. Look at this tabernacle. Look at the beauty and the detail of how I'm going to do it. I was just thinking about this as I was driving through seriously two completely different seasons within the course of a couple hours in so, so much beauty. I just felt so aware of God's presence in my own mind. And I was just observing like, look at how creative these ways were to get our attention, to make us know that God was present with us post-garden. And as I was driving, driving, and I was looking at all this beauty and thinking about this creativity, I was like, God, what is the thing as a pastor that I'm supposed to say to like make this big deal feel like a big deal? What's the thing? I had no thing. So I almost called you Sanghei. Sanghei every week that we have just GC takes my sermon and asks the most thoughtful, probing questions. And on that drive, I realized I need to call you and give you my sermon on like Wednesday. And so you can write our response. But I was going to call her, but like literally the driving was perilous. I wasn't going to call anybody. It was not a time. And so I didn't call you Sanghei, but I was like, what is the thing? And as I kept on driving, I was like, I don't, I think this is different. It's not a normal reflection question moment. Just observe, Melissa. And I say this to you guys, observe. Here's what I observed. I observed creativity, amazing pursuit. I am not that patient. Like the, the ongoing pursuit of finding a new way. The persistence. That's not a finite list. That's what I was thinking as I was driving. And I was blown away. Like what stands out to you? I was just thinking about creativity and pursuit and persistence. And my heart was so warmed, you guys. I literally started crying. And then I stopped. I'm like, I am driving. I can't. Like, but I was, my heart was so warm. My eyes were wet with tears because I was just sitting still in it and reflecting how badly our God wants to be in relationship with us, wants to wipe out that plot line of shame and pursue after us. How recklessly, um, that seems like the wrong word, but it feels kind of true. Like I will not give up. I will be found by you. And my heart was so warmed. I was like, I don't think that this is a week for like a reflection. Instead, I'm just going to hand you what I thought and <laughs> 
do with it what you will, include laugh at me. You guys, I think that this is like, this is like tiramisu. Hear me out. I was driving and I was thinking, if there's a perfect, perfect dessert, it is tiramisu. It is such a blend of textures and flavors. And if it's paired with a decaf cappuccino, I'm out of my head. But here's the thing, like tiramisu, if anyone said, I'm going to change it to make this version even better for you, like me trying to say, like, how can I make this even better and give you that pastoral little thing? It'd be like somebody saying, I've made it better. I've like, you know, added fudge and be like, don't touch the tiramisu. It's perfect. Like it's perfect. But the thing with tiramisu is like, you know, when you have that or whatever your thing is, like pick your thing. I'm going to stay with tiramisu. You know how it is when at the end of the meal, you're absolutely stuffed. And then you see that tiramisu is an option and you're like, I can't not just dwell with it. Like I, ha- I have to. And you don't rush. Kristen, you can la- I told you you could laugh at me. Thank you. I'm serious. I was thinking about this for a really long time in the car. Like you're not going to rush it. You're not, you're not going to gobble it and go. Like just, you just don't do that with tiramisu. You have to just sit with it. You have to just enjoy it. Everything slows down. There's no making it better. But in that atmosphere of like tiramisu moment, it, you just stop. And you take it in and you just let it be its perfect self. And I thought that that's what this morning is. There's no, there's no how you should apply this to your life, you guys. This is one of those moments that's beautiful, like that sky that erupts before you. And all of a sudden you realize I just needed to slow down and see it because it's been there the whole time. I just don't slow down enough to see it. And when I see it, like tiramisu, I'm not going to gobble it up and keep going. What does it look like to allow yourself to actually pause at some point and dwell with the ongoing, creative, persistent pursuit of your God to be found by you? If that's all we do this morning, or maybe later today, whenever you or your brain can settle enough maybe to try it, like just sit and allow your heart to be overwhelmed with the love of God who says through all of history past and into all of history future that we're going to talk about the next few weeks, I will be found by you. Just slow down and let your heart feel that that goodness long enough to not rush past the next thing in your physical body or in in your mind. My mind is the one that's moving faster than my body these days. And in that car ride, I realized that all I needed was the forced stillness of just dwelling on God's pursuit of presence. And you guys, that'd be enough. Like Sam said a couple weeks ago, you know how it would have been enough to have that beautiful dinner out. But then there was tiramisu. It would have been enough, but God is so much more. And that's what I encourage you to do today. Just take a tiramisu moment and just just in, enjoy, just relish, just um, sit under the deluge of delight that your God has said, I will be found by you. Look for me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. Amen? So let's pray. Um, God, I just, I'm blown away by the beauty that's all around us. These tabernacle moments, like the curation that you did of that space to just make people sit in awe 
of you in the details of those uh, sewn pomegranates. Like you wanted us to encounter you in beauty then, and I believe you still do now. Help us to have tabernacle moments where we can just pause and take in the smells like you had with the, the, the menorah and the incense and this, the, everything was engaged in that space. Like, God, help us to be people who look, look and appreciate tabernacle moments where we're just blown away, not only by you in the beauty, in the details, in the pursuit, in the creativity, but in the presence. God, um, we need your presence. We long for it. We confess that we can be um, busy bodies and scattered minds. Help us to slow down enough to see when a tabernacle moment is upon us and to worship you, God, for your pursuit of presence with us throughout all of time. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.